Today's presentation of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. With me in the studio today is Dr. Bernard Powers from the College of Charleston. Bernie and I have been colleagues in the historical profession for two decades now, and an article appeared in the, the national press a couple of months ago about the Denmark Vesey plot, incident, rebellion. It goes by a number of names. And Bernie and I began talking, and then we both figured we needed to talk about 19th century black Charlestonians because that's a very interesting group of South Carolinians about whom not a lot is known. Bernie's done a great book on them, but it's a story that not a lot of people are aware of. So a long introduction, Bernie, but welcome back to the journal. Well, Walter, we're, we are very pleased to, uh, to be here this morning. We enjoy participating in the show. It's a great show. Well, thank you. Let's just talk a little bit about who was Denmark Vesey so that our listeners can be aware of it and then the historical discussion about his life, his trial, and his death. Okay, sure. Uh, Vesey was, insofar as we can tell, probably born in the, in the Caribbean, uh, perhaps on St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands, and, and we date his birth to the late 1760s. Mm-hmm. He was purchased by a man by the name of uh, Joseph Vesey, 1781, I believe, was the date, and uh, Joseph Vesey was a ship captain involved in the the slave trade in the Caribbean, and he did not own Vesey very long before he sold him into slavery in um, Saint-Domingue, what would become Haiti later. Uh, As the story goes, Vesey was a very wily young man, and seemed to have uh, all of a sudden uh, affected these epileptic episodes, which made him unfit as a slave. And uh, that meant that Captain Vesey, Joseph Vesey, his owner, had to take him back. And he will then uh, continue working on board uh, Joseph Vesey's vessel, commercial vessel, trading vessel in the Caribbean, until uh, the ship captain comes to... Charleston uh, during the American Revolution, and they'll uh, they'll settle in Charleston afterwards, and then Vesey is um, he remains a, a slave until 1799, 1800, and he has he has a very interesting, unusual uh, way of obtaining his freedom, and that is he uh, apparently there was there was a private lottery. Uh, they mm-hmm. call it the East Bay Lottery. And Vesey bought a ticket uh, for this lottery, and the ticket won. He won $1,500. Mm-hmm. This is so unusual. A slave that, that won that amount of money. And beyond that, his owner, Joseph Vesey, allowed him to purchase his freedom. And so he purchases his freedom for $600, and he'll begin the 19th century as a free man walking the streets of Charleston. With now. capital. With capital, Nine, yes. $900. With cap- that's know. right. And he With established capital. himself as a carpenter eventually? That's right. That's right. That's right. Eventually uh, becomes a carpenter. So he's a skilled free black in the city of Charleston. And uh, something, something else that sets him apart is that he is a dark complexion 
free black mm -hmm. in the city, in a city where such an extraordinarily large percentage of the free black population was actually of mixed race heritage mm -hmm. and therefore of light complexion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and of course, that will, I think, be an interesting part of the of the Vesey Rebellion is that um, people, the, the persons of color who were lighter skinned, usually consider themselves the leadership of the of the free black community. Isn't that? That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, That's absolutely right. Um, um, and and Vesey was also unusual in that his relationships were primarily with with other slaves. So he is he is free, but he has he has routine, regular, bold relationships with people who who were slaves. Again, that goes against what most free persons of color in Charleston, except those who even when they own slaves, but in terms of social interaction, tried to distance themselves so that people made sure they were not yeah. slaves. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, that's that's one of the real tragedies of free black life in the antebellum South. And, and, the, and most people have no sense of this, but regardless of how close a free black might have felt to the slave community and to individual slaves, there, there could always come a point in that free black's life when he or she would clearly have to distinguish themselves from those people who were, who were their same color Mm -hmm. the same race, but were slaves, mm -hmm. and would have to draw the line and say, no, I'm not like that man or that woman over there. I'm free, and they are slaves. Yeah. Of course, Jehu Jones was one of those who, who had that famous hotel. That's right. Uh, That's right. He, That's he right. was very careful never to, you know, he, he went to the Episcopal Church, had his pews there, and he wanted nothing to do with anyone who was darker than he was. That's right. Even owned slaves, used them in his business, and Insofar as we know, uh, all of the slaves that he that that he owned mm -hmm. were strictly involved in his business, and mm -hmm. and 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 he, he did not serve any benevolent purposes by and through uh, that ownership. Mm -hmm. This is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Dr. Bernard Powers of the College of Charleston about Denmark Vesey. One organization that Vesey became associated with in Charleston was, I think, an interesting one in the fact that the African Methodist Episcopal Church got a charter from the General Assembly, and they built a church, and very quickly, there were literally thousands of members. Is that not correct? Yes, 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 absolutely. I mean, the church begins with, in the neighborhood of, of over 4,000 members, and by this time um, in Charleston, the Methodist Church was really primarily a black church. Mm -hmm. uh, African-Americans dominated uh, the church overwhelmingly. And this is very, very, very important, um, I think, for people to, to understand. The AME Church begins in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. really, as an African-American secession movement. Protest. Yeah, Richard a protest a Richard movement. Allen. That's right. Um, Richard Allen, Absalom Jones walk out of St. George's Methodist Church in Philadelphia protesting uh, racist practices mm -hmm. and racial discrimination within the church. And so the denomination, an all-black denomination, and the first all-black denomination begins as a significant act of rebellion mm -hmm. and as a demand for social change. And uh, what is, what is going to happen in 
Charleston is that there'll be some some changes in the way that black Methodists um, operated and, 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 and ran their classes and handled the money that they raised within the white Methodist church. And there'll be some new limitations placed on their activities. And as a result of those new strictures, uh, Morris Brown, uh, mm-hmm. who was a free black mm-hmm. in Charleston, and uh, some others went to Philadelphia and they obtained the authorization to establish an African church, a branch of the AME church in Charleston. And this is, this is amazing because the AME church is, it's an abolitionist church. Mm-hmm. Um, slaveholders could not be members of this denomination. And to think of such a church planted in the very heart of South Carolina is just astounding. And the fact that it got the charter. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it's an important story because what will eventually happen is that the leaders of the church and the, the members of the congregation will be harassed. There'll be persecutions by the city authorities. There'll be arrests. Morris Brown would refuse to close down the church, and on more than one occasion, um, he spent time in jail. He was fined. Uh, there were others also. Denmark Vesey is a member of this church, uh, having having left the Presbyterian Church. And, and unless most of the members of this church are slaves, is that yes, true? that's right. Because the free persons of color, uh, not not they frequently joined either the Episcopal Church or the Presbyterian Church. That's right. That's right. Absolutely right. Um, um, had the children baptized in uh, those in those uh, those churches and were. Uh, we're very, very, very proud of their membership mm-hmm. in these elite denominations. So back, back to so I'm sorry, but back, back, back to the AME Church, which predom- yes. predom- it was predominantly slave population. That's right. That's right. Uh, Denmark Vesey is a member of this uh, of this African church, and not only that, he has a leadership position in the church. He's a class leader, Mm -hmm. which means that he is kind of a liaison between Morris Brown, the free black pastor of the church, and the broader membership. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kind of a a sub-pastor in in one sense, which means that he was trusted, he was looked up to, admired, uh, and had this position within within the denomination. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's also interesting because... Uh, the man who, who's known as Jack Pritchard or Gullah Jack, Gullah, Jack. Mm-hmm. Gullah Jack was also a member of this church. And Gullah Jack uh, was an African from someplace in south-central Africa. And he was highly regarded and in some quarters uh, in the black community even feared for his magical yes. conjuring uh, ability. yes cast spells uh. yes and this is this this really tells us a lot about Charleston and it tells us a lot about African-American Christianity and the encounter between Africans and Christianity because you know you've got you've got Morris Brown who's an African-American born here the leader of the church you have Gullah Jack an African conjure man mm-hmm. capable of casting spells and making magical potions also a member 
of the same denomination and the same church. And so one of the things I'm very interested in is trying to learn much more about the extent to which Christianity as practiced by African Americans was was African in character. What is the extent to which African practices, sensibilities inform their early practice of Christianity? And when you look at the African church in Charleston with not only Gullah Jack but other Africans who mm-hmm. held their membership here, I would think that it would have been replete with African practices and creolized practices involving traditional African behaviors, worship forms, as well as those that were those 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 that were more more Western and traditionally Methodist. Well, and, and of course, you, you have complaints by white clergy. I'm jumping ahead now, but once the AME Church is closed and destroyed after the Vesey plot, you could have African American congregations, but a white person had to be there. Yes, either a clergyman yes. or a right church right. elder or or something, and they would talk about whether you're talking about um, the song, the dance, uh, the ring, Mm -hmm. uh, the shout, uh, that this was not proper way to worship. Yes, 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 Um, absolutely. God. Yes, Um, absolutely, absolutely. I'm fascinated as to what all you're going to find because as we now know going back through documents, you can pick up things here and and there just like Chaz Jordan was able to find in Georgetown clearly evidence of, of Islam on mm-hmm. certain plantations. That's right. And it's, it's amazing what your heightened sensibilities in a certain direction will do once you go back and you look at records that you had, had looked at 10, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. It is as though, you know, now we, we have a heightened awareness of, mm-hmm. of Islam and what that means for, for mm-hmm. us and the Islamic world. You know, and we go back and we find things that we looked over before because we didn't appreciate what the documents were telling us. And, and, and the same thing, I mean, just on the face of it, where the West Africans who were brought to South Carolina, they came from areas that were Islamic. That, and also, when you talk about Angolans, you talk about Af- West Africans who were, were Catholic. Mm-hmm. Yes, and of course, Mark Smith has touched on that with exactly. with, with Stono that there seem to be some real Roman Catholic overtones to yes. that whole organization on Mary Day. Yes, 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 absolutely. So here, here, uh, that's another very important example for two reasons. Uh, one, it points out um, that at least uh, in terms of this particular group of uh, of Africans from the uh, the Angolan area, their introduction to Christianity didn't start. Over here on this side of the Atlantic, it started on the African side. Mm-hmm. And that's not what we normally think. We think the mm-hmm. process of Christianization and proselytizing mm-hmm. begins over here, but, uh, but that's not the case. Uh, the other thing is that, uh, based on Mark Smith's uh, research, uh, religion then, uh, Christianity, specifically Catholicism, uh, probably played some role in the organization and goals of at least those who comprised the nucleus of that, Stone of that Stone Rebellion yeah. too, in that um, their goal was to get down to, to Florida uh, where their co-religionists, uh, the Spaniards, mm-hmm. resided. In terms of the Denmark Vesey uh, conspiracy, uh, religion plays a role here also, and uh, it is it is likely that there were discussions that occurred amongst the leadership of the African church in Charleston that worked to 
structure and plan mm-hmm. the conspiracy. And uh, it is also, we're told from some of the participants, based on, based on the trial record, and, and I think we can believe certain things that we find there, uh, that it was the harassment by the, the white authorities, the harassment of the African church, that was one of the catalysts, not the only one, uh, but it was the kind of defiling of this sacred Afro-Christian ground mm. that provided an impetus for the organization of this, of this uh, interactionary effort. Uh, Denmark Vesey, as a leader, had his own personal reasons. Um, he uh, would have been a troubled man simply because uh, he was free in a slave society. Uh, he was married, uh, apparently was never able to liberate his wife. He had children who were enslaved. And, or, and let people okay. need to understand mm-hmm. uh, that in South Carolina, uh, as in Roman law, a child took the status of the mother. Absolutely right. So he had, he had his personal considerations and um, reasons why he would have been driven to this and willing to take to take such a such a stand and the conspiracy is organized for the summer uh, June of uh, 1822 and uh, the plan so it seems was to rally enough slaves, from the countryside, have them come into the city, and then um, cooperate together with a series of slave uh, groupings that have been organized in the city to uh, sack the banks and to invade the couple of uh, arsenals Mm -hmm. that were there in the city and not particularly well guarded, arm themselves, and then for as many people as possible to get on board ships, and flee. Mm-hmm. Now, one, one of the other key elements here uh, is, is very much a part of, of Charleston and Charleston's history and Charleston's geographical position, and that is Vesey and others expected to receive some aid and assistance from Haiti. Mm-hmm. And uh, Haiti is a place that, for good reason, had uh, struck terror into the hearts of slaveholders for about three decades by this point in mm-hmm. time, and it has the distinction of being the only place in the Western Hemisphere and, 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 and probably one of the very few places in world history where slaves had risen up and liberated themselves and seized control of an entire country. Mm-hmm. This was an amazing feat, and... The Haitians were able to do this beginning uh, in the 1790s, fighting against the English, at the, the British at one point, mm-hmm. the French at another, at another point, and successfully liberate themselves under the leadership of Toussaint L'Overture. And by the opening years of the 19th century, are in full command of their own country. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting that Vesey had at least spent a little time there before the Haitian Revolution occurred. So he had some familiarity with the place. And then there, during the course of the Haitian Revolution, there were many 
um, refugees that fled from the fighting, and they came to many of the major yeah. southern ports, yeah. some yeah. some as far north as Baltimore, yeah. for and, example. And, and they were white and black. White and black, and that's frequently right. The, frequently the, black, the persons of color were free persons of color. That's right, exactly right. And, and of course, they brought with them the, the tales of terror and... Yes. In terms of insurrection, which became yes. the boogie-boo for, yes. for yes. a slaveholding population. That's right. That's and, right. And particularly when you get to the 1820s, you talk about how the white community is beginning to clamp down. For those who remember the American history, the debate over Missouri, admission to Missouri in 1819, yes. uh, when the whole slavery issue became a national mm-hmm. issue. And then in 1820, the federal census says, Whoops, South Carolina, you're black majority again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that all of a sudden got people's attention. That, yes, that's right. And you mentioned the Missouri episode. During the, the congressional debate over the admission of, of Missouri, uh, the uh, discussions between pro and anti-slavery forces were front-page news items. And we know that Denmark Vesey was familiar with those discussions, and he even read from the newspapers to his uh, fellow conspirators as they organized the conspiracy. And he and others might have, they might have somehow misconstrued, though, um, what was happening in Congress. And, and they might have reached the conclusion that, that they had been declared free. Mm-hmm. But somehow the South Carolina government and South Carolina planners were trying to keep that information from them. At any rate, they were well familiar with uh, the fact that there were people in the country, that there were whites in the country who were anti-slavery, who were struggling against the system, and that if they perhaps made a bold bid for freedom now, they might they might emerge victorious and they might be able to, to escape, at least in large numbers. And, of course, you might say, well, what are, what are Southern newspapers publishing all this debate that can can that you know black folks can find out about? Well, Charles Pinckney of South Carolina, who was the only founding father in Congress in, during the Missouri debate, of course, was very. He said Congress has no authority over slavery. You know, the Constitution. We we, we settled that, and he was very much opposed to the Missouri Compromise. And of course, the newspapers in the South were just and up in arms about the idea that Congress could regulate the movement of slavery to mm-hmm. the territories. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Uh, that's right. So this is this is Jefferson's fire bill in the night. middle of the night. Yes. So uh, this is the scenario that in, 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 in different forms ultimately is going to lead us to civil war. Well, so th- this is what's going on in, in June and spring 1822. Uh, in terms of you know, the, the plans going on, and seize the arsenals, the banks, get on the ships. There was also destruction. Talk about destroying the town, was there not? Yes, yes, that's right. And and Walter, you know there are there are uh, there are all kinds of thoughts about this, mm-hmm. and in and in in a number of quarters, Vesey has been represented as a genocidal maniac. And there, there is a section from the trial record where it says something like, uh, "All of the whites were going were going to be slain." Mm-hmm. And one has to one has to wonder whether 
that is a statement that one can take literally at face value because just from a logistical point of view, one wonders how it would have been possible for these people to have spent that kind of time in the city enacting a genocidal plan, killing all of the whites, and then being able to successfully escape. I think, I, I think we've got to think of that more figuratively in the sense that um, there would have been, obviously, many violent clashes mm-hmm. uh, as these people attempted to free themselves, and many would have died black as well as white in the course of this, of this action. And then the plot was betrayed, the conspiracy was betrayed. Yes, that's right, and word would, word would leak out, um, and uh, in fact, uh, there was a, a slave who was told about this, consulted with a free black, uh, who encouraged the slave to tell his master, uh, and then another slave would find out, told his master, uh, and then the arrests begin, and the arrests, the interrogations. That, that's where you begin to, to wonder about the validity of the, uh, the, conf- the confessions, because there were sticks and carrots. Well, if you tell me what was going on and implicate somebody else, then we'll go easy with you. Right. And uh, that's and pretty soon it was snowballing, and everybody was being accused of being involved in the right. That's uh, I mean hundreds being involved. Right. That's in exactly the, right. I believe uh, just over 130 people were arrested. Ultimately, 37 people would be would be transported out of the United States, and 35 people would be executed. Mm-hmm. In fact, Walter, there were 21 people executed at one time, mm. simultaneously. This is, this is amazing when you they were think hung. about that. They were hung. They were hung and shot, hung and shot. Yes. Uh, uh, and, 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 and this occurred on the edge of the city of Charleston. And, and the person who was accused of leading the plot went to, his, went to his death denying everything. Yes, yes, yes. Hardly, hardly having said a word about it. Uh, having said very, very little, uh, and there were a number, and there were a number of these men who went to their graves silently. Others, though, did did implicate others, and just as you say, it uh, just as you say, it snowballed. This is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Dr. Bernard Powers of the College of Charleston about Denmark Vesey. At the time, there South Carolina, there was a South Carolinian on the Supreme Court. Johnson, yes. Justice Johnson, yes. who anonymously yes. questioned the whole, yes. first of all, the legality of the investigation in Charleston. Mm-hmm. I think he called it a kangaroo court or words to, yes. to that effect. Yes. And then questioned the validity of confessions taken under duress mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. said the whole thing was manufactured. Yeah, and these were, and these were secret trials also. The mm-hmm. public was not witness to these interrogations and trials. And this raised some some other questions about about validity here. Uh, amazingly, uh, some of the defendants had attorneys. Mm-hmm. Not, most of them did not, and they would have been provided by their owners. Mm-hmm. And when you think about this, um, you know, a lot of these men, those who were at the heart of the conspiracy, were were artisans, mm-hmm. very valuable, mm-hmm. and so their owners if possible, 
wanted to get them off. And a number of the, the owners, like Governor Bennett, he was astounded that any of the people that he owned, since he was, you know, quite, he saw himself as quite the benevolent master, he was astounded that any of his people could be so accused. Uh, and he's an example of someone who provided uh, Rolla mm-hmm. Bennett with, uh, with an attorney in the attempt to, to get him off. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, and, you know, but the point is these were, these were trials, but hardly worthy of that term trial because mm-hmm. these people did not have the same rights that white citizens would have had. Even those who were free persons of color. That's right. Even those who, who were free persons of color. And the attorney general of the state would say that they were not entitled to the same kind of rights that whites were entitled, Mm -hmm. that free whites were entitled to. And when people like Justice Johnson questioned, it was was an anonymous letter that he wrote. Mm -hmm. Somebody found out about it, and he had to publicly recant his, if he wanted to come back home, he had to write. Right, right. I mean, right. that tells you what the what the situation. Yeah, what the what what the atmosphere was was like. Well, um, you know, Vasey's one of those fascinating figures because he's, as you say, some to some he is a martyred hero, to some he's a genocidal maniac, to some he is the victim of a conspiracy. He didn't commit it, but he was the victim of a, a victim, conspiracy yeah. by Charleston's officials. Yeah. Uh, you know, who was Denmark Vasey? A number of biographers have tried to come to that, right, <laughs> to the bottom line. Who was right. Denmark Vasey? That's right, that's right, that's right. Uh, and, exactly. and as we know, about six or eight years ago, there were two biographies published pretty close together, and one of them was pulled by its publisher because the author was accused of misusing, deliberately misusing evidence. Right, that's right. Which is, you know, in the historical professions, pretty rare. The very, yes. It is. It is. Um, and very, very serious. But yeah. there is new work being done on Vasey, Professor Michael Johnson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's interesting is he's using documents from the South Carolina Historical Society. That's right. That have always right. been there. Right, right, right. That's right. But That's a couple right. of them really That's sort of are new documents that came to came to light. That's right. And, uh, That's right. That's right. But this may be one of those questions we may never know yeah. the answer to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's true. And just as and just as we've we've seen the discovery of or the or the the new use to which old documents are being placed, we might fi- find some some other evidence, uh, some other information to to come to light that'll give us further insight. Mm. You know, I think one of one of the other things that's very important about this episode is um, the consequences for the city of Charleston and what happens here uh, as well as the consequences for the for the coming of the Civil War mm-hmm. because we can we can see in the aftermath if uh, if we can if we can go there uh, a real paranoid kind of a psychology well, well this this was where George Rogers says the open city becomes the closed city that's right that's new, right. new, new, where yes. a, a city that had prospered economically and culturally because it was open to new people and new ideas was closed to both. That's right. That's right. And, Absolutely and right. Uh, it also economically, with the passage of the Siemens Acts, which restricted free persons of color on ships 
whether they, no matter where they came from, mm-hmm. had a dramatic impact on the port of Charleston. Yes. As, yes. as English, as European and New England ship owners just said, we're not going to go there anymore. Yeah, right. That's right. That's right. Um, and that's sure. That's why, that's why the occupation of Mariner, and there were a lot of uh, free blacks mm-hmm. who, who, who were mariners in the late 18th century uh, and in the antebellum period, was a, was a potentially very dangerous one if you were sailing into a southern port. Mm-hmm. Because uh, just as you say, the Negro Seamen Acts passed in, South, uh, in, in, in Charleston, uh, and all of the other major southern ports will follow Charleston's example. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing about this is, you know, we think about, we think about the Vasey episode and we think about its domestic consequences, and there are a lot of them, but there are also the international ramifications because you mentioned, you know, British sailors being incarcerated and mm-hmm. held in Charleston jails, and this, this creates uh, some diplomatic conflict and there are diplomatic notes exchanged between the U.S. government and mm-hmm. the British government over this because uh, the Brits were not going to sit idly by without protesting the incarceration of their free citizens. And this is, this is very important because frequently when people think about slave interaction, they're very parochial in thinking about the consequences. And they said, oh, well, this has implications for Charleston or South Carolina or the South. But in this case, we're talking about, no, internationally. And it's the same thing, really, with the, uh, the Stono Rebellion, mm-hmm. because this involves Britain and, uh, and Spain mm-hmm. uh, over the, uh, uh, the constant enticement that the, the Spanish were involved in, enticing British slaves to run away and come within their midst. Mm-hmm. So we got to kind of broaden our, our, our horizons and frameworks when we think about uh, the arena in which these things unfold. Well, you um, know, th- that's why when people today talk about South Carolina becoming a part of the global village and the global economy, I just say, hey, folks, from the, from, you know, for two yeah. centuries, yes. South Carolina was. Yeah, right, that's right. Economically, politically, militarily. Um, that's right. That's right. You know everything that I mean. Things that happened here had an impact far beyond the boundaries of our sure our uh, little thirty-one thousand square miles. I I remember some of those those old maps, mm-hmm. late seventeenth century, eighteenth mm-hmm. century, labeling Carolina as in the Caribbean. Carolina mm-hmm. in the Caribbean mm-hmm. because it, it was connected economically, well, it, it, culturally. Culturally, you know, well, you, 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 I mean, you know my argument that, you know, we are the colony, and it's not just new with me, but I, I think I've pushed it more than a lot of historians, is, is that South Carolina is uh, cultural, the, the cultural ethos that came out of Barbados, even though the, mm-hmm. the white Barbadians were not the majority for that long, but I think their stamp, along with the black Barbadians that came, mm-hmm. helped set the pattern for not just South Carolina, but for the lower, the lower sure. South that South Carolina populated. Sure, sure, sure. That's um, right. That's right. You know, and it's, um, you know, this is an incredible place that's, that's you know, the, the history of, of, of our state, Bernie, as you know, is, is so rich and so diverse. It really, it really is, Walter. And increasingly, uh, People are people across the country are finding out about the real significance of this place. All people, but let me just 
let me just focus on on African Americans for for just a minute. Okay. Um, as as you know, and a number of your your readers know, that during the height of the Atlantic slave trade, about forty percent of all the Africans brought to mainland North America come through the port of Charleston, and so obviously it makes this place terribly important. But you know, I I was a few weeks ago in Cleveland. And uh, I was up there doing the, uh, doing a lecture, and it was it was based in part on Henry Louis Gates, uh, the second part of his American Lives mm-hmm. series, which uh, which just aired about a week ago. And uh, there are some teachers in Cleveland that are building some social studies units around um, around African American lives, and I was kind of talking about how you mm-hmm. can use that material. And of course, there were two people. Chris Rock, and uh, the radio personality Tom Joyner, mm-hmm. both of whom uh, Henry Louis Gates discovered had roots connected to South Carolina. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of Tom Joyner, the Columbia area, Chris Rock, the, the Georgetown area. So that was right there as a part of African American Lives too. Uh, someone on the panel with me uh, on that day one of her parents was from, from South Carolina. This is a girl from Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And then someone who, who shares uh, an interest um, with me in African-American religious history. I happened to speak with her on that day uh, at this meeting. And we talked for about 10 minutes. And lo and behold, her husband is from Darlington, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. So, so, so uh, this place is just terribly important even today you can see it if you just scratch the surface a little bit uh, in the african-american community you will be able to make a connection to south carolina this is walter edgar's journal and i'm talking with dr bernard powers about african-american historical research well you know it's if, if you look at the the out migration of South Carolinians, black and white, but particularly African-Americans in the post-Civil War period and getting into the 20th century. You know, if, if you go to places like Buffalo or Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, New York, yeah. especially Washington, yes, D.C., but what you're doing is you follow the rail lines. Yes. You're going to find where these communities, and then later on in the 20th century to places like Detroit and Cleveland to follow the the iron and the automobile mm-hmm. industries, mm-hmm. although you mm-hmm. usually think of folks from the Mississippi and the lower south right. going right. up that way. Right. But the South That's Carolinians right. went up the, up the east coast, up the Atlantic coastline, the seaboard coastline, and the southern. That's, That's, right. That's, That's right. the way they, that they went, and they went by the tens of thousands. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, one, one of the things that I found very interesting uh, in New York, and I'm sure it's the case in, in uh, Philadelphia and Washington also, mm-hmm. in churches, there are South Carolina clubs, mm-hmm. and 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 the purpose was to bring the migrants together and give them a kind of a focal point and orientation, mm-hmm. as they as they entered a new city, entered a new congregation, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. Give them friendly faces to uh, to talk with and converse with about home, mm-hmm. and those clubs still exist in those in oh, those churches well, today. Well, well, as one expatriate said in the early 20th century in Washington, you know, we're proud to be known as South Carolinians. And it's amazing, given yeah. what black Carolinians, when they left the state, no matter what, they never forgot where their roots were. That's right. And a lot of them, as you now know, are, come, are returning. Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Having, I think, having gone and 
yeah. been employed and uh, worked their careers in other places, coming back to enjoy the fruits of their labor. Are, and are, are sending their grandchildren or children back to yes, South Carolina. That's right. One that's of the most right, interesting right. experiences I ever had teaching, this was in summer school, so you know it was a while back. <laughs> um, and I was, and I, it was towards the end of the summer session, and I had the read Willie Lee Rose's rehearsal for Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And I was running late, and somebody was basically teaching my class. Well, I had an older black woman in the class, Eddie Mae Brown. She was from Columbia, had worked for years in the National Archives, and had retired in Washington, had retired back to Columbia. Mm -hmm. And I, kn I knew her because I'd worked at the archives. And she said she wanted to come to class because when she grew up in Columbia, uh, she couldn't walk across the campus, mm -hmm. university campus. But what she was doing, how she was teaching the class, is that she was, she was saying she had gone to state college and she had to do her student teaching at Penn Center. There weren't many places mm -hmm. where young black teachers could do and she, she was talking about, and not necessarily a very favorable light about the white folks who were running Penn School, because she said, this is the same way it was in the 1930s, is she said, I had to cut my wood, I had to do, and she said, they were there, and we were, and she said, you know, I want you to understand, young men and women, how much a part of our history, we're looking at 1863, but I was doing this in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and I just let her go on for a little, but the kids were just absolutely uh, spellbound because here was history. Yes, in the in the person of this South Carolinian who had spent all of her adult life and most of it in she'd gone to Columbia University, gotten mm -hmm. her her archival degree, and then gone to work for the National Archives and sure. spent her career in Washington. Sure, but she sure, wanted sure. to come back home, and that same fervor for Carolina is what kept a lot of people here too, mm -hmm. you know? And that's, and, and, and that leads to another fascinating aspect of, of life here. And that is there are you know, these people whose, whose families have remained here and because some of the records, some of the plantation records and maritime records going back to the era uh, of the slave trade are so good, they've then been able to trace their ancestry back not just to the generic Africa mm -hmm. but to very specific African ancestors and now to very specific places, mm -hmm. villages and towns in in African countries. And and, and we know. know because of the work of pioneering work of Dan Littlefield mm -hmm. is that unlike at least eight in the eighteenth century, unlike most other Southern white planters, South Carolina, white Carolina planters knew sp specific West African ethnicities. Yes. And yes. they would often describe John a Senegambian, or they would, mm -hmm. it would either when purchased or sometimes in, in correspondence. So you would, you would have that, that link. That's right. That's uh, right. That's which right. Uh, which That's again right. is, I mean, you read Henry Lawrence, and although mm -hmm. he uses lay terms from the 18th century, you can read 20th century anthropological descriptions of, of certain persons in, in West Africa, and it's the same. Right. I mean, that's right. The, that's these right. people knew. That's right. That's uh, right. That's so, right. That's right. Uh, I, I'm glad you mentioned tracing families because a lot of a lot of uh, individuals say, "Well, how can persons of color trace their their families?" It is getting easier as people are understanding what can be gleaned from the records. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's absolutely right. And then and then. Um, the 
kind of work that's being done with uh, with DNA mm-hmm. now too is is helpful in terms of being able to kind of narrow down the possibilities, not necessarily direct you to very specific places, but to identify people that one might be connected to. You know, one of the uh, one of the uh, the most interesting things that I've ever come across is based on that work um, that Lorenzo Dow Turner did um, in coastal Georgia, Harris Neck, Georgia, mm-hmm. in the 1930s, and it's the it's it's the background to that um, the film, the language you cry in, mm-hmm. and uh, that that story is just fascinating. Uh, and and uh, Lorenzo Dow Turner uh, is in that area, Harris Neck, Georgia, 1930s, comes across a woman singing a song, which is obviously in a foreign language. He determines that it's in the language Mindy and uh, records it. The woman sings this song because it had been handed down to her, mm-hmm. probably uh, going all the way back to the 18th century. Mm-hmm. And uh, fast forward a bit, the song is passed on to her daughter, who still is able to sing the song in the 1990s. And then uh, Joe Apollo, who, who you know, done uh, a lot of anthropological work uh, on Gullah-speaking people, mm-hmm. South Carolina and Georgia, and African linguists then decide that they're going to trace, they're going to see if they can trace the origin of this song to uh, to West Africa, to Sierra Leone, and find out the precise origins of it. And if you can imagine this now, they're traveling around in the countryside of Sierra Leone, going from village to village, playing this the recording of the song, hoping to find someone mm-hmm. that knows it. And, th- you know, there's failure after failure after failure, as you can imagine. And then finally, though, they do come to a place where someone recognizes the song, recognizes the words, the significance of the song. As it turns out, it's a funeral dirge. And Mindy women had special responsibility during the time of um, burial uh, to, to prepare the gravesite and so on. And they, sung, they, they sang this song during, the, during that period. During the grave during preparation. The, yeah, the preparation of the grave. And so the funeral dirge, and there's a there's a um, there's a film now about this whole episode, and it's called "The Language You Cry In," and it has a title because uh, the Mindy speaking people believe that you really get to know a person and what they're made of once you understand the language they cry in, the language they mourn, yeah. oh. and so and and so. They're able to trace now uh, Amelia Dolly and Mary Moran, that's her daughter, trace their ancestry back to a very specific place in Sierra Leone based on a song. Oh. Based on a song. That's, that's, it's, that's a fantastic it's story. It's fascinating. fascinating, yes. It really, it really is. And then, and then right in North Charleston today, there's a young woman who is the descendant of one of uh, the slaves on one of the ball plantations, um, an enslaved woman going back to the 18th century who's known to us as Priscilla and uh, our contemporary, who's a teacher in North Charleston, Priscilla's descendant, has 
has, has been reconnected through documentary research, and she has uh, gone to, to Sierra Leone where uh, Priscilla came from and has been welcomed as a long-lost daughter of Sierra Leone. So people are reconnecting themselves, reconnecting to their specific roots in specific places, specific ethnic groups, and the DNA is going to help us uh, do even more. And, and, you know, the other thing that's so fascinating about this, Walter, is that it shows the real important connections that can be made between hard science and the humanities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now we're in, we're in the month of February now, Black History Month, and so frequently when it comes to these uh, kind of, you know, special months and so mm-hmm. on, the, the hard scientists say, well, we let you humanities people take that over. We don't really have anything to contribute. But yes, they do. Mm-hmm. And DNA is just one example of what they can contribute okay. and talk about. Okay. Bernie, I hate to say it, but we're about to run out of time. Have you got anything you'd like to add to our listeners? That, that was a fabulous conclusion right there. Okay. But have you, have you got any last words you'd like to, to give to our listeners before we sign off today? Well, I, well I'd just like to say that uh, I, I just appreciate the show so, so very much, and I hope it continues to go and you continue in your work which is an inspiration to all of us for many years to come. I appreciate the invitation to be here. Well, Dr. Bernard Powers, professor of history at the College of Charleston, thanks for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you. My pleasure. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.